To everyone who's interested, today we're meeting to, with Dr. Tom Lambert to speak about paleography and why anyone should care, what it's about, and how you do it. Um, Tom has, for a number of years, led workshops at the Meter Center on, 15, uh, on 16th century French paleography. And in fact, we'll be doing so again uh, in July, however, not in person, but online. But we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But to begin, uh, welcome, Tom. And uh, Thanks, we're Paul. very interested in knowing what is paleography? We talk about it, but why should anyone care? Let's begin by saying what it is. Okay, well, pretty simply, paleo means old, graphy means writing. So it's old writing or the study of old writing or the, the art and science of reading old writing. So uh, that can be anything from ancient documents like uh, little pieces of wood with uh, letters that soldiers wrote, Hadrian's Wall to send back to Rome to you know, maybe through the 18th, 19th century police records, anything of that sort. And in my particular case, I, I read documents in 16th century French, and that's what we focus on in the workshop. And the reason for that is, well, obviously because of the Meter Center's focus, <laughs> for one, but also because it is a, a bit of a challenging period from about 800 AD for until about 1200, people use Carolingian minuscule, which is similar to modern uh, handwritten printing in lowercase. And there's a gradual shift to black letter, which is uh, roughly like what people would see um, on those terrible uh, kitschy signs in Old English, spelled with an E. But in the 15th and, and in the 16th century, people transition to, to cursive writing, and that becomes general in the 16th century. But it takes another century or two uh, before the chancelleries of Europe, the official scribes and so on, settle on um, an official standardized hand. So in that period from the late 16th, 15th century into the 17th century, handwriting is very, it's highly variable and uh, just, I think, to a modern eye, fairly messy. So, for example, a lot of times when I give a, a document to a native French speaker, one of the first things they do is turn it upside down and then turn it right side up because it just doesn't resemble our script that much. So it's just deciphering these difficult-to-read documents, and there's a lot of components to that, and one is just the handwriting itself. But in addition to that, you have... Uh, a lot of linguistic variation at the time. So, for example, in France, after the revolution, when they first uh, did a survey for the educational system, only 15 out of the 85 départements in Fran France actually spoke French as the normal language of, of uh, instruction. So you have a lot of local variation. And then, obviously, it's an archaic language. So anybody who's read Shakespeare or Chaucer in English understands you have a similar problem with uh, with reading a 16th century French. And, and it's actually even a much greater problem because we think of Shakespeare as artificially modern or Calvin. If you read Calvin in French, he feels very modern. But part of that is because Calvin was such an important figure that he makes an, 
such a contribution to the formation of modern French, French that he feels particularly modern. Whereas when you're reading a random scribe who made no contribution to the language, their oddities don't get picked up and carried forward. So they feel even more distant. So you have the local variation plus just the, the archaicisms and the age of the language. And then finally, you just need a real broad cultural knowledge uh, because of, of all of the references. And I came up with an analogy, which I'm going to have to read because it took, I had to think about this for a second um, because I'm not, a, I don't, I'm not on social media and so on, but I thought, imagine you found a text from somebody, you're a historian in 2500 and you found a text from somebody from back in around, say, you knew it was roughly around 2020 and it said, dude, check out your FB feed. CDC says COVID is going to be a big deal. Uh, there is so much of that that would be really hard to decipher. Like the word dude, if I look in my college dictionary, it means a city person who's well-dressed. You know, check out, it's, you know, it's going to refer to library uh, books. When it says a feed, you know, it's all the references in my dictionary are to food. Um, so like already you can see that's kind of incomprehensible to someone who is would be say reading that with a 1980s knowledge and then you come up with things which we come up against a lot in the 16th century where it's fb feed which i don't even have a facebook account but i would immediately recognize that as a facebook thing but if you were looking at it from 500 years distance you would need a really terrific cultural knowledge to be able to decipher that type of sentence and so when you're dealing with these old documents, those are the kind of challenges that you come across. And that's the task is to unravel that puzzle. Okay, excellent. Now that's, that's a very good introduction. Now, so you've got a group of people sitting there in front of you. What do they need to know? What is going to help them begin to say, oh, I can do this. Uh, this is, this looks like a real puzzle to me, but you're saying this is fairly complex. So what am I going to have to do to really get into this? So it's, it, it obviously there's our, our levels of complexity. There are a lot of texts that somebody would be able to pick up and just read with no problem if they have a, even a reasonably good knowledge of the language. So the first thing is just to find text that you can actually read. And just similar to learning to read in your own language, you just keep ratcheting up to more and more difficult texts. And so if you start with an easy text and then uh, that goes well, you know, you just move up to the next harder text and keep working on your knowledge of both the handwriting and the language and the culture. And all of those things are going to help. And I've certainly uh, come across people who are very good at deciphering handwriting. They're really good at pattern recognition, but they maybe don't have a great knowledge of the culture mm -hmm. or people who just have such a good knowledge of the culture and language that even though they're not great at, at the pattern recognition of the handwriting, they can decipher a document. And essentially what people need to do is just find documents that they can read 
that they can make progress on and work on their weak points, whether that's, you know, making catalogs of letters and comparing them to work on the handwriting or putting together a good list of go-to dictionaries so that they can work on the vocabulary or reading general histories and biographies so that they can fill in their cultural knowledge. Okay, great. Okay. So uh, how does this uh, make you a better scholar? How does it make you a better scholar? Well, uh, I could answer that at a few levels, and I'm going to answer it at the obvious level last. <laughs> because, uh, first of all, for me, um, it just was the thing that really kept sparking my interest in the past and in history. So, uh, to me, it just kept it fun. And Paul, you knew my, uh, my graduate advisor, Bob Kingdon. And that was one of the things that I so admired about him is that even at 80 years old, he would get so excited. And the reason it keeps it exciting is when you read in secondary sources, it's you're reading through a filter. And when you dive into the documents, that filter goes away and you're getting a bit more of a random selection of the past. So you have to do things like you come across these words you don't know, and you have to go to a dictionary or maybe the next level where you have to go to a medical treatise or a legal treatise or a biography. And so it, it just kind of forces you into a, a, a broader, um, deeper image of the past because you have to go down all of these avenues in order to construct uh, uh, the meaning of this text. Uh, and it also, I think, often just surprises me about the past. So it knocks me out of a certain complacency. And I can think of dozens of examples, but one that always comes to mind is just reading through the boring day-to-day -day deliberations of the Geneva City Council and in walks somebody from the countryside who has captured an eagle, which is the uh, symbol for Geneva, part of the symbol of the Genevan flag. And he brings in the eagle to show to the counselors and releases it in the council chambers. And the eagle flies around the council chambers until somebody opens the window and it flies out. And it's just this thing that I would never have imagined happening. It seems like if you saw it in a movie, you would say, oh, you know, stupid Hollywood thing. And yet, you know, there it is. So that dive into the document is more random than reading in secondary sources or even printed primary sources. So I feel like it gives you that uh, a sense of the color of the past uh, more than uh, you know a, a filtered, organized view of it. So that I think is just really helpful as a historian and it really um, keeps it interesting. Beyond that, of course, there are all sorts of documents that are not printed. So, for example, if you want to be an expert on Calvin's sermons, more and more of them are finally being edited. But until, you know, 50 years ago, there were only the ones that were printed in the 16th century that were available without being able to read manuscripts. Uh, and so if you really want to know Calvin's sermons, you would have had to know paleography. And that's true for many writers, artists, and so on. And then 
finally, I would say it just makes you a much better reader. So one of the things that I find over and over in our workshops is people will come up with a reading and then I'll say, and what does it mean? And, and they haven't actually thought about that. And I think as readers who are reading printed, edited texts, we tend to be very superficial readers. And there are exceptions. I think people who study theology, philosophy, poetry tend to be really deep readers. But in my field as a historian, people tend to be fairly superficial readers. They read for general content. They tend to read quickly. Um, a lot of times you have to read a, a lot of volume as a historian. Uh, we don't tend to do those deep dives that a poetry scholar or a theologian does on a small text. And when you start doing paleography, it slows your reading down and forces you to really think about, did I actually understand this text? Mm -hmm. And I think that that has, even if you never do research in the archives, I think that has a carryover impact on how you read other texts and how you understand them and how you understand your own understanding of what you've read. Okay, excellent. Very good. Yeah, a couple more questions. So you mentioned archives. What do you mean by archives and how does that enter into the whole field of paleography? Ah, okay. So you obviously are created are a curator at a library and generally speaking the a, a, a library is a place where a curator collects things of interest and it's a it's a curated collection. An archive is usually curated not based on a representative sample or something like that, but types of documents. And so they're at all levels. It could be a family archive where it's all the documents from that family or a municipal archive or a state archive or a national archive. But it's essentially a depository of documents of a certain type. And, uh, and they can be any kind of document. I mean, nowadays an archive might be holding video recordings. But, uh, but the key thing is, is that they, they, again, tend to be not curated in the same way as a library or a museum. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the reasons why when I said it ends up being a bit of a random walk through the past is you tend to know when you start reading in an archive, what type of document you're going to read, but you tend to not know what the content will be. So, for example, you might read all of the all of the the minutes of a given notary and just start reading them. And you're, of course, you know what type of document it's going to be. It's going to be contracts and marriage contracts and wills and things like that. But you won't know, um, you know, will these be say uh, rich people wills or modest people wills or um, will they be, you know, will it be a land sale or, a, I don't know, a, a, a contract for goods? And so, um, so they tend to be family or state collections of documents of a given type. Uh, and that's another reason why 16th century is a period to focus on is, you know, if you go back to, say, the 13th century, most archives are going to count their documents by the number of documents. And as you get to the 16th century, 
they're going to count the number of documents they have by the number of kilometers of documents or meters of documents because we have this huge, huge explosion in the 16th century as paper becomes cheap and it becomes easy to record all sorts of stuff. Okay, interesting. Well, one final question. So how has technology changed all this? Can't I just go online and find what I need? And do I really need to learn how to read this stuff? And if I do need to do this, can I, how does technology help me do this? Uh, it's funny because when I first did the workshop at the Meter Center in 1998, I remember one of my lectures was explaining to the students that there was this thing called the internet. And as scholars, they would probably want to know about it and start to use it. And that there were some resources that actually were worthwhile for scholars. Fast forward uh, 23 years and we have a lot of resources online um, that really help with the task. So for example, in 1998, any decent dictionary helpful for paleography was in print. And if you didn't have access to a library that had it, you were just out of luck. Now, not only are all of those dictionaries, and just as of this year, by the way, Uguay, the 16th century literary dictionary is now online, but, uh, or last year, I guess. But not only are all these great print dictionaries uh, available online, but probably the premier dictionary is a native online dictionary. Hmm. So meaning it's, it, they've, they've, they started online and now there's a printed form. So it's going the other way from what we normally expect. So there are a lot of things like that. Um, there are also all kinds of books, any book that's out of copyright, uh, which is really most of the books that we use a lot for paleography. They're, they're, a lot of them are 19th century scholarship where they put together biographical dictionaries and things like that or you know the great biography of calvin which is a great source by dumergue seven volumes folio size you know it's all available online now uh, for download so there's just a tremendous corpus of work that's out there and and there are things like google books that have gotten better and better at making those texts searchable so uh Sometimes you'll find if there's a phrase you really can't crack, you, you, you'll just search it in Google Books and you'll find it, you know, all over the place. And occasionally you'll find out that there's even an addition for the text you're working on and your problem is solved. So for most of us, that's the, the, the thing that um, paleography has, cha that has changed with technology for edge cases where people are doing really uh, I guess what I'd call extreme paleography, they're doing things like using um, x-ray tomatography to do things like they'll take a palimpsest, which is a book that has been erased, a vellum book that was erased and then written over, and they'll actually be able to recover the text that was erased. Mm -hmm. And then recently, just in the last year, a team did uh, a project where they found a cache, the, the, the Brienne letters, 2,600 letters of which I think 600 were unopened. And they were able to do very, very fine layers of x-ray and then reconstruct those layers, put them into software and open and unfold those letters without having virtually, without having to physically 
open them. Um, you know, obviously we don't do that in the workshop, but there are some pretty crazy things that people are doing with very high technology. And, uh, and we'll see, I don't know. I mean, I've been at, I, I, when I first started in 98, I was a little bit of a technological optimist. I thought maybe by 2020 computers would be starting to decipher handwriting of the 16th century, but they've made surprising little progress, but we'll see by 2040, um, maybe we won't be offering a workshop anymore. <laughs> for many reasons. But thank yeah, you. for many reasons. Hey. Yeah, <laughs> you and I certainly won't. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But it's been really fun. Thank you for uh, talking to us about paleography and what it means and its importance. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Paul. Bye. Bye.